Hello, friend, and welcome to Write Medicine, a weekly podcast that explores best practices in creating content that connects with and educates health professionals. I'm your host, Alex Housen, a longtime medical writer who shifted from a career as a trauma OR nurse into academia and then transitioned from academia into freelance writing in continuing medical education. I've built a sustainable six-figure business that specializes in creating and evaluating educational content for health professionals, and I use my expertise in education and healthcare to guide rich, honest conversations about the practice of creating CME content with intention. And I teach medical writers how to create CME content with confidence. Write Medicine is here to offer you guidance and strategies as you navigate all phases of CME. Come and join our thoughtful, provocative and valuable conversations about adult learning, teaching platforms, content creation techniques, effective formats in CME and trends in healthcare that influence the type of content we create. Right Medicine is here to motivate you to learn and grow as a CME professional. Wherever you are in the content creation process, if your work involves planning, designing, delivering or evaluating education for health professionals, this podcast is for you. This episode of Write Medicine is brought to you by Write CME Pro, a membership-driven community that provides skills, scaffolding and support for medical writers who want to create CME content with confidence. Write CME Pro gives you access to expert perspectives to help you build your CME writing skills, a portfolio accelerator to hold space so that you can create stunning samples to show your prospects group coaching to help you build foundational and expert knowledge in CME and more. Write CME Pro is a community for people like you who are ready to grow their CME writing niche or niche, if that's how you say it. See the show notes for more details. Hey, Write Medicine listener. Did you know that the podcast is active on LinkedIn? or I should say, I'm active on LinkedIn. I read and respond to all your comments, like this one from Mayor Meshram. After listening to episode 63 with Andy Krim on ChatGPT, Mayor posted this on LinkedIn. AI's predictive nature sparks intriguing discussions. Join the episode to explore its challenges and implications for CME, or continuing medical education. So please do connect with me on LinkedIn and post your thoughts about the podcast. And if you're a pharmacist, you're probably going to have some thoughts that you might want to post about today's episode. I'm joined by pharmacist and director of pharmacy at Minnesota Oncology, Carolis Hanna. I first met Carolis at the end of 2020 in the context of an end-of-year report on oncology trends for the Association of Community Cancer Centers that included a series of focus groups that I conducted with ACCC members. I was deeply impressed by Carolis's humanity, clarity, and pragmatism. And if you don't know Carolis, I think after today's episode, you will be impressed as well. 
So in today's episode, we talk about the challenges and opportunities for pharmacists who are transitioning from clinical to non-clinical roles, and we explore the different roles that pharmacists can take on in non-clinical settings, such as creating educational content, particularly in the continuing education for health professionals space, or working in the pharmaceutical industry. Carolis highlights the unique value that pharmacists bring to education and the importance of foundational knowledge in specialist areas like oncology pharmacy. And we pull in a couple of questions from listeners who are pharmacists in this episode as well. But we also talk about the challenges that pharmacists face every day and the evolving nature of the pharmacy field. So join us as we dive into the world of pharmacy and explore the possibilities for pharmacists as educators and their unique contribution as educators to continuing education in the health professions. Welcome, Carolis. Good to see you here today. Likewise, Alex. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm delighted to uh, have you on the podcast. We've connected in a few different places over the last couple of years, really, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation. And today we do have some questions from listeners, so we'll get to those in just a little bit. But to start us off, if you could just share a little bit about who you are and something about the work that you're currently doing. Sure, absolutely. And again, you know, thank you for, for having me. Really excited you know, to spend a, a little bit of time with you. But you know, to briefly introduce myself, my name is Carolos Han. I am a pharmacist by training. Uh, I went to school down in Florida here in the U.S. and did a couple of years of residency. I'm currently the director of pharmacy at Minnesota Oncology. Minnesota Oncology is part of uh, community oncology. It's part of a very large network called the U.S. Oncology Network. And I'm also an assistant professor at the Mayo Clinic College of Medicine in Rochester, Minnesota. You know, outside of my, you know, I guess eight to four, seven to three kind of job, you know, I am involved in a lot of organizations within the pharmacy industry. I sit on many boards, chair a lot of committees. Very, you know, I, I value education, peer to peer education, which has really driven me to become more and more involved in the field. Clinical research and those kinds of things, publications, those are also some things that I've kind of generally have been involved in over the years. And I think it provided me with a lot of satisfaction from my career outside of, again, just the standard day-to-day job. But, you know, in my current role as a director of pharmacy, I really oversee all of pharmacy operations for our organization. We have 14 clinics. We have compounding services. We have oral chemotherapy services. We have various clinical initiatives within the organization. We run P&T committees. So really just kind of being part of, of all of that work for our organization. And a lot of our conversation uh, in today's episode is really going to focus on education for and by pharmacists. But I do want to ask before we get to that, how on earth do you find the time? Because this is a lot to have on your plate. No, of course. I mean, I, I think, and, uh, you know, I, my wife and I talk about this all the time, just, you know, the, the number of hours in a day and how we, you know, keep, you know, bouncing around. But, you know, it's, it's a uh, little sleep and a lot of caffeine is what I like to joke about. The thing. <laughs> but, you know, I know, I think, you know, within pharmacy, we have seen so many different trends within the pharmacy field, right? During the pandemic, we've seen a big shift toward, you know, virtual work. Post pandemic, we've seen a mass exodus of people kind of going into the pharma space. And I think it's because pharmacists oftentimes fail to recognize opportunities outside 
of their day-to-day job that they can become more and more involved in, which really leads to great satisfaction. I personally enjoy what I do. So outside of my work, when I do get involved in educational opportunities, whether that is a publication, whether it's a national presentation, it's although I'm investing a lot of time outside of my work hours, and sometimes that takes away from family time, so it's going to be also important to come up with a balance. Just the enjoyment of that, to me, it's not more of, it doesn't seem like a task that I'm doing or a job that I have to do but more of one of those activities that I actually enjoy doing. It's more of like a hobby to me to some extent. So I think that has helped me, you know, gain a lot of satisfaction, as I mentioned, from my career and from the pharmacy industry outside of, again, just a day-to-day job. So it's, it's, it's a lot of work outside, but generally, if you enjoy it, it, it doesn't tend to be too tedious. Yeah, it's something that your, your, your passion is, is clearly evident. And you did mention that, you know, pharmacy is... It's ever evolving. It's undergoing a lot of change at the moment. What, you know, what are some of the kind of key trends that are, you know, contributing to, I, I guess, two things. You know, on the one side, there's the, uh, the passionate pursuit of the things that interest you, one, within pharmacy. Mm-hmm. On the other side, there are trends that are driving pharmacists out of pharmacy into non-clinical roles. Absolutely. What's your take on what's going on there? It's really multifaceted. Number one, I think within the healthcare field, there is a significant gap in measurable criteria that a pharmacist should and should not be measured on. And those criteria within organizations vary significantly if they are present. And they don't dictate how a pharmacist should advance in their career. So oftentimes pharmacists who are in a certain role are challenged by their employer because there's a lack of metrics to measure productivity, yet we know the value of pharmacy across the board. There's a lack of metrics that incentivizes them to become more involved and get their name out there and get the name of their health system out there. So then oftentimes people are finding themselves making X amount of dollars per hour in their day-to-day job. They're overworked, they're short-staffed, potentially underpaid or not getting adequate enough raises year over year to demonstrate the value and the worth that they bring into the organization. So it brings in, you know, just a a lot over time, it tends to be a little bit, you know, I I guess it it weighs on the employee and on that pharmacist. And I think that's where Mm -hmm. we kind of see a shift. I think also employers. Now, I understand to some extent, you know, some clinical roles and some pharmacy roles may not be remote eligible. You know what I mean? Sometimes pharmacists have to be on site, work a seven to three, Mm -hmm. work at eight to four, work a nine to five. Whereas in other areas, employers can come up with unique opportunities to allow that pharmacist to work outside of the office, work from home, work remotely create your own flexible schedule. And as long as you have measures that the work is being done, that's, you know, in the grand scheme of things, the goal. So I think the lack of or inability to measure quality of pharmacy, as well as the lack of some being able to to shift toward unique job roles has really played a burden. And we we understood that I think the pandemic really brought that to light in the grand Mm -hmm. scheme of things where we kind of, you know, end up being in this situation where we are today. 
Now, again, you know, and, and some, you know, just seek a higher, you know, monetary compensation outside of their their day-to-day job. So there are, you know, a subset of them that, you know, may want to kind of exit the field just because of other opportunities. But again, you know, we don't know how to incentivize pharmacists if they're BCAP certified. We don't know how to incentivize pharmacists if they sit on committees with national organizations or are board members of national organizations. We don't know how to incentivize pharmacists who are involved in research and who publish. And there's a lot of heterogeneity there. So I think that's kind of what has led to some of this. And do you see employers beginning to, you know, take steps in order to be more creative in terms of how they're incentivizing, you know, pharmacy staff and and measuring their their contributions? They're trying to, to be quite honest with you. They're trying to, you know, we're trying to come up with unique, at least I'll speak, you know, for employers that I have experiences with. Some have been unfortunately too late to the game, and then you may be in a critical staffing shortage, right? Or having some Mm -hmm. significant constraints on your current employees. Others have been trying to. And I think, you know, it, 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 some are doing it better than others. Some have really come up with unique ways. Again, like I said, you know, one of my organizations that I've worked for, our entire oral chemotherapy department that wasn't dispensing medications. So they're not physically dispensing, they're doing clinical work. They migrated that entire team to work from home, brought a lot of job satisfaction to that team. Whether that team is sitting in a cubicle in the office or sitting in their office at home, their productivity actually measures out a lot better in the home. Now, yes, you see some variability maybe in the hours worked or in the time work. But again, we saw like pretty significant productivity mm-hmm. around that. So, so yes, I would say employers are working on it to some extent. I think the ch- one of the challenges too is just kind of a metric again around pharmacists, I think compensation as well and levels of pharmacists. Mm-hmm. I'll give you an example. I work with an organization called Absho, which mm-hmm. is more so focused on APPs, so advanced practice providers. And they came out with a really great rubric around metrics to measure an NP or a PA. How many patients should be seen a day? How many you know things should be done or tasks, et cetera? and kind of tied certain monetary metrics to it to try and provide guidance. And I think pharmacy has a, there's a significant gap there in the pharmacy world. Was there, how, how was that metric creation or development received by, uh, okay. Yep. But oh, yeah. It was, sur- yeah. Sorry, so, so they collected the information through surveys and mm-hmm. it was disseminated through their website and through their publications. And it was received, it, it's been received great by, by many organizations. Okay. You know, I actually brought that to Interesting. Uh, our director of clinical practice here who kind of oversees some of our nurse practitioners. And we brought that to a board level of trying to level set expectations for nurse practitioners. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. And of course, so we're, we've, been, we've been talking about, you know, what's going on inside the clinical space in terms of driving people out strategies to retain pharmacists. But for those pharmacists who leave, you mentioned a lot of them are are heading toward industry, to the pharmaceutical industry. What are some of the kind of non-clinical opportunities for pharmacists that you're seeing right now? And what are some of the challenges that they might be encountering as they migrate from a clinical role into non-clinical roles? You know, that's a great question, Alex. 
pharmacists can, it, the, the, the amount of things that pharmacists can get involved in and the roles that they can work is just everywhere. There are pharmacists that work to create, educate, like they actually work just to create educational content for organizations or educational companies. That has so many levels. There are pharmacists that can have jobs that kind of bring in, you know, funding opportunities to then deliver educational opportunities. There are pharmacists that can work for things like NCCN. I know a medical writer, mm -hmm. who, pharmacist, who works for the National Comprehensive Cancer Network. There are pharmacists, again, that could go into the pharmaceutical industry, but even under the pharmaceutical industry, the variability of jobs there is significant. There are pharmacists that could be more sales centric, could be more medical education centric, and that medical education could be a, a role where they're providing medical education to HCPs, or it could be providing medical education or developing education for internal purposes, so mm -hmm. for their own company. Mm -hmm. So many different things that a pharmacist can do really across the board, and it just really depends on you know what they're passionate about, and then also you know outside of clinical roles, which, you know, to me, that's a role where you're in direct patient care. Within organizations, pharmacists play significant roles as well, right? You can move up the administrative ladder. You're no longer part of that direct patient care. But I know pharmacists that are part of very, very large practices who work to kind of build relationships with manufacturers. You know, mm -hmm. a, a colleague of mine works for Florida Cancer Specialists, a very large practice in Florida. and all he focuses on is payer relationships. How could we connect with payers to build relationships? And from that, we could get contracts, right? With, with pharmaceutical companies, with payers. There are pharmacists that can work in IT as well, right? Developing various technologies for health systems, developing technologies to be, to be utilized elsewhere. So numerous different things. Now, some of the challenges people can face if you're shifting from clinical practice to something like that, unless it's something you've invested a lot of time in, there could be some knowledge gaps there to kind of, you know, become successful in whatever that shift may be for you. But also, I think I, I, I find that, you know, particularly those who practice in oncology, a lot of pharmacists end up missing the direct patient impact or the patient touch. Oncology and hematology are very unique areas of pharmacy. A lot of people kind of get into this field just because of, you know, the personal experience they may have had with it in the past, whether through family, friends, themselves. So oftentimes they have a special bond, I think, to their patients. So leaving that patient care is sometimes a bit of a, of a challenge for some. Right. And I should say that, you know, a lot of listeners of the podcast are pharmacists, so they are going to totally understand all the acronyms and abbreviations, but I will make sure to have links in the show notes sure. for non-pharmacists. Non it's a very acronym heavy area. And this is probably a good time actually to uh, just kind of pop in a question from a listener, Nicholas Planchard, who's also a pharmacist. He asks, oncology seems to have a steep learning curve for many pharmacists. How do you suggest that pharmacists overcome oncology's intimidation factor? Yeah. We're talking about oncology there and its unique characteristics for pharmacists. And that's an excellent question. And many people have asked me that question. As an oncology pharmacist, I can't stay up to date with everything going on in oncology. So a couple of things, you know, I, I, I have not come across any 
school curriculum, a farm D curriculum or whatever curriculum you're part of that prepares a pharmacist to go into oncology. It's too large. Interesting. Oftentimes you may get an elective where you have, you know, a one hour course every week or so for a semester, but it's not really robust where it's focused on oncology and there's just so much going on. So I encourage pharmacists to seek out extra training. What is that? Residency training. So although you would invest two more years, potentially, of your life, focusing on, you know, a general residency year and then maybe an oncology pharmacy year, the ROI, the return on investment is definitely there if you're truly passionate about oncology. Two, buying or, or getting some type of access to resources that are preparatory material for the BCOP exam. The BCOP exam is the board mm -hmm. certification oncology pharmacy. Those are great resources. They cover some of the main cancers. There are videos that, you know, experts and faculty actually conduct to help tie in the chapter and the written material to a live presentation. And that can kind of help pharmacists prepare a little bit in terms of oncology knowledge. And I would say you have to love literature. We, we have to read a lot. We have to evaluate a lot of clinical trials, um, especially in areas where you're seeing a lot of opportunity, you know, me too options or very similar options and trying to evaluate mm. standards of care and things like that. So there just has to be a passion. It's, it's not challenging, but there has to be a passion for it. And I think now within oncology, because of how large oncology is, and I started off by saying, I don't know everything in oncology. But there's foundational knowledge that's needed for a pharmacist to be successful in oncology. If you achieve that foundational knowledge, you will know how to navigate everything in oncology, right? If you understand tyrosine kinase inhibition, you'll understand the 80 drugs in that class, generally how they work. You won't know all the kinases or targets that they hit but you'll know what it means to be a tyrosine kinase inhibitor and how that pathway works. And as we identify various targets and different cancers, that's where a kinase inhibitor could work. If you understand general concepts about immunotherapy and the immune system, if you understand general concepts about cytotoxicity and standard chemotherapy, you start to kind of then once you come across a drug or come across a disease state, you start to think of you know, okay, I know that this drug works this way. I know this cancer behaves this way. That's why it makes sense to couple this drug into this cancer. So it, you know, it, it's extremely difficult to, to stay on top of everything. And I generally recommend to people pick a couple of cancers or disease states that they're, that they like, they like the drugs mm -hmm. used. They like the patients and become an expert at it. Know the ins and outs know the nitty gritty, know the guidelines, know the literature, know what's coming up. Mm -hmm. Everything else, if you're not too passionate about it, have foundational knowledge. So once you come across those things, you can further seek out, you know, the resources and the literature that you need to kind of help answer any questions that come up. I love that. Those are really clear stepping stones, actually, for, for any kind of specialization that, that people are interested in, whether pharmacy or or elsewhere, when you're confronted by the intimidation factor, consolidate your foundational knowledge, seek out resources, and enrich your your specialty by uh, really kind of drilling down and, and and building your expertise through practice. I love that. That's a great response. 
Hey, dear listener. Episode 65 is the last episode of season five of the podcast. And to mark this occasion, we'll be doing a live recording of the podcast on LinkedIn Live. You'll be able to ask questions and make comments in the moment. And if you can't make the live event, check out the show notes and my newsletter for a link where you can ask your question in advance. If you aren't already a subscriber to the Right Medicine newsletter, this would be a great time to sign up. Every two weeks, I share tips, tools, and tactics to help you confidently create continuing education content for health professionals. See pages.alexhausen.com forward slash newsletter, or just click the link in the show notes. So much easier, where you'll also see the details for our LinkedIn Live Right Medicine podcast episode. Before we got to Nicholas's question, we were, you know, you were talking about education and the very special affinity that pharmacists have for education. And, and, you know, I think it's fair to say that pharmacists bring a kind of unique value to the field of education because of their role in, in educating patients, but also educating their colleagues in the clinical context. And you were talking about, you know, pharmacists who are moving into non-clinical fields educating HCPs and so on. What is that value that pharmacists bring to education and how does their niche expertise enhance the learning experience of their colleagues? So I I think, Alex, you know, pharmacists are uniquely positioned to be excellent educators through so many different avenues, whether that is public speaking and professional presentations, whether it's something pre-recorded, whether it's something written, whether it's a podcast, internal within a health system, external outside of health systems, to peers, to patients, to HCPs. And the reason why I think that is, is a pharmacy kind of or a pharmacist has to wear two hats, right? Number one, you're the drug expert, right? So, you know, the ins and outs of drugs and even, you know, kind of when we, when we kind of talked about oncology being so big and you're not going to know everything in oncology. That foundational knowledge just really helps. The pharmacist needs foundational knowledge about drugs and also how to seek out resources to answer questions about drugs. But at the same time, pharmacists also, to an extent, have to be experts in the disease, right? You know, you have to take the medicine and tie it back to the issue going on. Without that, you only are aware of 50% of the puzzle. You know what I mean? So that's kind of where I think why pharmacists are so unique, because they understand the ins and outs of drugs. They understand to some level, the degree of the disease and how the drug is impacting the disease overall. And this applies whether we're talking about blood pressure, whether we're talking about infectious disease, whether we're talking about oncology, these foundational bases should be part of every pharmacist's understanding. And that's why I think it really positions them in a great level or or at a great level to be excellent facilitators for educational opportunities. And that's probably a good side to the the next question I have actually from a listener, which I, and I think this question kind of gets at uh, your point about, you know, foundational knowledge, but the question is really about how do you decide which pieces of that knowledge to really kind of focus on? So I'll ask the question because it's, it's much better than my paraphrase. So Melanie Padgett, Uh, who's also a pharmacist, asks, since most pharmacists have to be knowledgeable in so many therapeutic areas, 
what level of detail is effective for pharmacist education? So for example, she says, pharmacists are most knowledgeable in pharmacologic therapy, but how do you divide the time with other areas such as diagnosis and non-pharmacologic therapy and so on? Yeah, and I think this is a significant challenge in retail pharmacy because you you have to stay on top of so many different drugs that it sometimes does mm. pose challenges for a pharmacist to be able to become more acclimated with certain disease states as much as everything changes. You know what I mean? I think pharmacists who are specialized, so those that go into critical care, ambulatory care, nutrition support, nuclear medicine, oncology, we become so focused that it's all we see day in and day out. So it's sort of like osmosis, right? It just kind of, you know, we learn that foundational knowledge and we use it every single day just in a focused area. So we get to learn more as we practice more and as we see more. The, the, The side of it, you know, again, where, like I mentioned, is a little bit challenging. Like, you know, for me, I am extremely rusty in critical care. I'm extremely rusty. And, you know, if, if it was retail pharmacy, because I haven't seen so many of those medications, I'll give you a, you know, a, a funny example, Alex, you know, I, I worked retail pharmacy part time for 11 years and finally left it. But oh, really? it was I every time I, I'd walk into a retail pharmacy, there would be a new insulin, the number of insulins and mm. brands and generics and, and inhalers and all these different things. It just creates a lot of challenge. And, and it, it is challenging to be a pharmacist. I will give it to, I'll, I'll give you that. That's why I always encourage people to try and specialize, you know, whether through residency opportunities or not, and find an area of pharmacy you're very passionate about. You know, my wife, for example, she does internal medicine. She's a pharmacist as well. She sees everything that walks in through the door, but she works for a government agency who generally serves uh, veterans. So her population is generally unique. Now, although they walk into the hospital, get admitted in the hospital for so many different reasons, your infections, your, you know, your maybe a heart attack, maybe a stroke, maybe hypertension. But that's what she sees day in and day out that she stays on top of, you know, those specific things that she's seeing on a regular basis. I'll tell you this, there are cancers that come through in oncology, extremely rare. I couldn't even begin to tell you what the standard of care is going to be, right? But again, we know the tools we need to tap into to tell us, right? I would first pull up NCCN guidelines. Well, I, I, I lied. I'll probably do a Google search to try to, you know, get some basic information. But we're going to pull up NCCN guidelines, right? We're going to look at what's, you know, what's going on here. As I mentioned, there could be some preparatory material that covers it. But again, if it's a super rare cancer, it may not even be in preparatory material because that's not what it, they want you to focus on. You're trying to really understand foundational things. So those are kind of ways I would go about it. I strongly encourage people to specialize. I I tell you know, nothing against retail pharmacy at all. You know, I have family members who are retail pharmacists as well. I mean, like I said, I did it for a very long time, but I encourage pharmacists to specialize in an area that they love. And if you want retail as part, you know, of your career path as well, that's always something that, you know, is going to be available I think for pharmacists to be a part of as well. But I, I think that's one of the most challenging areas to stay on top of, you know, disease states and linking everything out of sight of just that pharmacological mm-hmm. knowledge that we have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you've got to make things manageable for yourself 
is is one of the, kind of the key messages there I, I, I'm hearing. I do want to dig into the Google yeah. thing for a moment. When you're using Google, what's your strategy? Sure. So, I mean, you know, Google is a smart search engine, right? And I, I think as pharmacists or HCPs or it, the person using the tool is going to have an eye for certain things based on who you are and what you're looking for, mm-hmm. right? You know, a patient Googling their cancer or Googling their treatment, they're not going to know that when they see a link to PubMed, that's probably going to be a primary literature article, right? That could bring you to to what you're looking for. You know, they may mm-hmm. click on, I, I don't know, canceristerrible.com and then just go down a rabbit hole of, of incorrect or maybe not vetted information specific to that patient. So these are kinds of things that, you know, when I Google something, it's oftentimes I then, when, I'm, when, I, when I get my search results, I'm looking for links to primary literature, uh, maybe a link to a guideline, maybe a link to an educational session. We know, yeah. you know, pharmacists generally, if, you're, if you utilize something like Google for educational sessions or material, you also probably have a couple of vendors that you have utilized in the past, right? There are big names out there, right? You have Medscape, you have OnClive in oncology, you have Pharmacy Times in oncology. So many different things that we can look into. So those would also probably be things I kind of try to tap into. And then all- Yeah, that's interesting. It's always, you know, drugs. You you know, anytime you search a drug, you you can just go right there. And oftentimes, like I'm doing that to pull up a package insert to kind of maybe build out things internally or kind of work on that. But oftentimes, most drugs, it'll be the drugname.com, right? So you may not even need to do a Google search. Yeah. yeah, so sort of expert sifting. You've been talking about, you know, pharmacists as educators for patients, for their, their peers. What unmet needs do you see in the education space for pharmacists? And the, I guess the second part of that question is, you know, how can t- continuing education support the work that pharmacists are doing? That's a great question. Continuing education is extremely valuable. I think one challenge in the continuing education space, number one, is how much continuing education is out there, right? (laughs) How many vendors and how many deliverables and we have 24 hours in a day, right? Seven days a week. And it's sometimes hard to sift through which educational program or opportunity I should navigate with the numerous deliverables that are out there. So that's, you know, I think one of the challenges. Another challenge is I think there isn't enough education out there to really tap into standards of care and where there's a lot of ambiguity around standards of care. So mm-hmm. I'm talking about, you know, a disease state where you're two, three lines in and there are 10 therapeutic options. How do I navigate between regimen A, B, C, or F, you know? And I think a great delivery of education around those kinds of gaps tends to be some type of debate format where you get two, three faculty members who are thought leaders, content experts in those in that disease state, and they begin to provide perspective, Right. And if there's opportunity to even, you know, audience, you know, an audience to, to, to have a, you know, if this is a live program, definitely great. If there's an opportunity to 
you know, bring in audience members into this and submit questions as things come up to where the audience is even sort of part of the debate as well. These, these kind of interactive things, I think, have been limited. We don't see a lot of debate format structures focused on pharmacy. But, you know, there's tons of didactic lectures out there. This is the disease. This is the treatment algorithm. These are what you need to think for, you know, monitoring, you know, whatever. And this is how you educate patients. It tends to be kind of a cookie cutter thing. And I don't really Mm. think that there is a gap there, but it's more so of just how do we delve deeper and then provide better understanding. And I also think faculty is very, very important. The actual faculty member and the ability to deliver education. Not all educational deliverables, you know, are, you know, sometimes just the faculty, you know, depending on, again, how smart they are, they can dig so far into the nitty gritty that they begin to lose their audience. So I think Mm. to, you know, kind of as companies and whatnot develop educational materials, just looking at the faculty and their ability to to tie or kind of bring in so many audiences or, 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 you know, appeal to so many audiences, those who may not know oncology and those who are experts. And how do you provide a deliverable that's just a great, you know, regardless of who who is the audience. So I think those are areas where we can continue to improve upon. Oh, that's really a great kind of roundup of the potential Mm -hmm. for different education types of pharmacists. And just to kind of finish off our our conversation here, because we're we're up on our on our time, what would you say to somebody who, you know, a pharmacist, perhaps like a mid-career pharmacist who is looking for more opportunities to expand their role in in pharmacy, but is feeling a little bit stuck. They're not quite sure where they start. How would you advise such a colleague? I tell this to every level of pharmacist, whether you're a student, whether you are a resident, or whether you're a new pharmacist right out of school, or you're a senior pharmacist. Publications, publications, publications. I think there's a misconception around publications. You don't have to run a head-to-head clinical trial and publish results. That's not what that means. You can publish a unique topic about a drug based on a side effect that you've seen, a case report. You can publish a review article about a disease state where all of a sudden in one year, we went from one therapeutic option to five. We've seen that in oncology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You can publish around a controversial debate. You can publish on, you know, anything going on in legislation that impacts pharmacy. You just need to really find the ability, you know, the journal, the right journal, the right magazine. And the reason why I say this, publications gain attention of others. Mm -hmm. So depending on the journal, depending on the topic, everyone, everyone who is looking to develop something or find a thought leader, if you went through the publication process, got your paper peer-reviewed, and got it published online, that means people found value in what you had to say, that it's worth putting online indefinitely. Publications don't come down, right? And then when this pharma company or this educational company or this medical writer is looking for somebody. They, they want to look at a certain topic or a certain drug. Guess what they do? They start to Google, right? Mm-hmm. And they start to Google and then they come across 
that paper on PubMed that Bob Smith wrote from Florida, right? And, oh, this is really, they read through it. This is really interesting. There's his email, or I can, again, find him on LinkedIn, find him on Google, and they will reach out. And you'll, you'll be surprised at the number of opportunities that are available. I'll give you one example, Alex, just for the sake of time. Out of residency, sure. I value GU cancer, so genitourinary cancers. Bladder cancer is something near and dear to my heart. I love the disease. I know the ins and outs of it. As I was wrapping up residency, there was an explosion of immunotherapy options for bladder cancer mm-hmm. over a, a short period of time. I published a paper. I kind of just I looked at all the clinical trials, wrote up a review article, published it online in a reputable pharmacy journal. A couple of weeks later, I was invited by one of the largest, you know, oncology organizations to give a platform presentation on bladder cancer. That wasn't something I signed up for. They reached out to me and kind of offered that to me. And it was a BCOP presentation. So you mm-hmm. kind of BCOP, mm-hmm. pres- they're a little bit beyond CE presentation. So it was a little bit more rigorous. Yeah. And, you know, so those are kind of things that one thing will open up the window to another thing. And guess what? At those conferences, you're giving a presentation. They see that you're a great public speaker. Let's see if this guy wants to work with us on whatever other initiative or other project. So those kinds of things continue to open many doors for people, depending on, again, you know, how much you invest into it. But again, publications have been one of the most, I'd say in my career, have been one of the most significant and impactful things. And they're also, you know, if, if you enjoy research and learning a little bit more about whatever disease states, there's some value there for yourself as well. And publications are, you know, there's a barrier for some people to writing and thinking about writing. Is that something you see in pharmacy or are pharmacists trained to think about writing yep. as part of what they do as pharmacists? And, and, you know, that's a great point, Alex. And not everybody is a, is a great writer. Not everybody has, has, you know, passion for it. But this is also too where, you know, I think pharmacists, if they're a great educator, could you have an intern or a student that is, has time, wants to get published? Could you work with them, work with other members of your team? If you have an academic affiliation, somebody within your, you know, your, your college or university, where you can leverage someone else's expertise, if you can provide guidance on where you want something to go, you know, so you don't always have to be an expert medical writer that this is all you do day in and day out. But also keep in mind, writing, the more you read, the better you write. You know what I mean? Right. So. It, it, it becomes a style. You understand, like if you read New England Journal of Medicine articles, Lancet articles, all these different things, you understand how a publication is going to look like. So that will kind of help also people refine that skill sort of, again, in, a, in an autopilot fashion, which I think, you know, would, would help as well. But I, I'll, t- I'll give you another example. I've partnered with numerous students where we've written review articles together. I gave them direction. I gave them an opportunity to, to get published. Mm-hmm. It's also a publication for myself as well. And I would have four or five of them write different sections of a paper. It kind of comes back to me. I put it all together, make sure it flows nicely, that the writing styles match from different people, organize it all together. And we've gotten multiple papers published that way, where it's beneficial not just to you as a pharmacist, but also to others and upcoming learners and getting their name out there and, you know, again, putting it on their CVs and their resumes and 
being attractive candidates for residency programs and jobs and such. So a lot of opportunity there that it's not just, you know, whether I don't like writing or I like writing or I'm good at it or bad at it. It's a win-win for everyone. Kirillis, Hannah, thank you for educating listeners of Right Medicine about pharmacists as educators. Appreciate your time and energy here. Thank you so much. Thank you. If you'd like to connect with me or today's guest or access any of the resources we talked about, check out the show notes for this episode. They're on my website, where you'll also find additional resources. Find the show notes at alexhausen.com forward slash write W-R-I-T-E dash medicine dash podcast. And while you're there, don't forget to subscribe to the Right Medicine newsletter, where you'll find bi-weekly tips, tools and resources to help you create continuing medical education content with confidence. And thank you for listening today. Word of mouth is the most meaningful way we can help listeners find us and reach a wider audience. So please share this episode with a friend, a colleague or a client who might find the podcast helpful. And if you enjoy listening to the podcast, please write a favourable review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or share your testimonial on the dedicated testimonial link, which is also in the show notes.